Amen. Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning to the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, where we will be looking together at verses 14 through 30. That's Luke chapter 4, 14 through 30, and you can find that passage beginning on page 1008 in your pew Bibles. One of the questions that we have continually been led to ask in our look together at the Word of God is, what exactly does it mean to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? We know that as the declared children of God, that we should bear fruit in the Christian life. And Scripture gives to us very clear guidance as to what Christian fruit or fruit that is of the Spirit looks like in our lives. In other words, the Bible reveals to us who and what we are and who and what we become by the grace of God. We know from the Word of God who we are and where it is that we stand, and we're thankful for it. This morning, I'd like to shift gears just a bit and look briefly together at just exactly who and what Jesus Christ Himself has been revealed to be in the pages of sacred scripture. And more specifically, why that revelation indeed ought to chase away our fears in this life. Ought to bring us to a place of peace. Jesus has clearly revealed things to us in the Bible about himself. In order that we might give him glory. That we might believe and rest in Him and in Him alone. We see Him revealing Himself to fallen man throughout the pages of Scripture. And to one, we find that He is the merciful Savior. While to another, His revelation of Himself becomes the very means of heaping judgment and condemnation upon the heads of all of those who despise Him. The work of separation, the sheep being divided from the goats, happens every single time that the Lord Jesus Christ reveals Himself through the Gospel. And this morning I want to consider another incident of Christ's revelation. And it's one that really had quite the opposite effect upon its hearers from that which we have become accustomed to looking at. One of the reasons that I wanted to focus on this particular area of Jesus's ministry is because of the innumerable misconceptions about Jesus Christ that seem to exist in the church of Jesus Christ today. And please understand, this is not an attempt on my part to simply be negative or to only focus on the more difficult aspects of the Bible, the difficult words of Jesus Christ in order to sort of bring us down. As if I think that the, Christian exist, the Christian's existence should be marked by anything like a lack of joy or a lack of excitement or a lack of zeal. Quite contrary to that notion, those of you that know me well or who have been listening to my preaching for any amount of time by now know that that's not something that I think that ought to mark the church of Jesus Christ in our day. I despise it when I see it in any church this joyless brand of Christianity 
that gets passed off as supposed piety. As if the counsel of Scripture and the effect of the proclamation of the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are to be now marked by our lack of joy, by our stiff upper lips. No, beloved, we know that's nonsense. I'm not now and I never will push for that. In fact, I would say that it is for the exact opposite reason that I want for us to focus on one of the more difficult or hard sayings of Jesus Christ. We lack joy in the Christian life, often because we have missed the proverbial forest for the trees. So we must look at the entire revelation of Jesus Christ in the pages of the Bible and cling to the wonderful hope that is revealed by the very faith that God Himself so graciously gives. We must learn to rest in the revealed Christ, revealed by the power of the Spirit in the pages of His Word. And it's only when we see Jesus as we see Him revealed in the pages of the Bible without making apologies for Him, without trying to soften what He has said, without working on His cultural relevance, or somehow trying to make Him more palatable for us. It's only when we see Him as He truly is that we can even begin to experience true joy or anything like genuine peace. My fear, beloved, is that the picture of Jesus that exists in so much of what passes for the church in our day is absolutely inconsistent with the picture that we get in sacred scripture. And a Jesus that runs contrary to the revealed Jesus of scripture really is nothing more than an idol of our own vain imagination. Today the church all too often parades before the world a picture of a a pretty Jesus. Jesus, meek and mild, unable to bring harm or conflict to anyone, only wanting unity and love for all of mankind. A Jesus that's a mild-mannered Savior who just wishes that He could somehow help us to all get along. A Jesus who pities poor mankind And so he comes to show us simply how to love one another, how to never be upset, how to go through this life with silly plastic smiles plastered on our faces, just allowing everything to roll off off of us, never being indignant, never getting upset. Because after all, this Jesus would never have been angry, right? He came to take away the anger of that nasty God, the Father of the Old Testament. He pities us in our sin. He seeks to satisfy those awful demands of the Father so that we will not have to be bothered with any of it. Universal unity and world peace, that was the focus of this wonderful man, this brilliant teacher, right? Maybe you're thinking that my representation of the Jesus that seems so often to be put forward in our culture as a little bit extreme and that it's not really all that bad. Well, beloved, if you think I'm being flip or you think I'm merely overstating the matter, I challenge you. Go to your local Christian bookstore, walk over to the whatever is popular for the moment, the Christian bestseller shelf, and peruse those selections and see what you find. I can tell you that I am absolutely certain you will find that my representation 
is really not that far off. And it could not be any more contrary to the message of the Bible regarding the God-man, Jesus Christ. He did not say the easy things in order to keep the peace and satisfy the people with a false sense of unity or a false sense of security. He did not come to give us something to wish for so that we could then call that wishing hope. In fact, we find him in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew telling his disciples all about his mission in peacemaking. In verses 34 and 35 where he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I have, set, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus tells his disciples that he did not come to simply bring unity to the whole world, but division. And we have seen that division over the years as we've looked at the Bible together, have we not? We saw it so often in his parables, his message of the kingdom. His words divide. They are difficult to hear. And it is a universal difficulty. They're not only difficult for those who openly hate them. They often are difficult even for those who supernaturally love Him. We know that these disciples were continually faced with it. The teachings of Jesus Christ were not always easy to swallow. They were difficult. I said at the outset this morning that I think that our misconception of who Jesus is and what in fact He came in order to do is tied directly to our lack of joy and our lack of genuine peace that seems so prevalent in the church of Jesus Christ today. The truth is, beloved, we have apologized for the Word of God. And we've tried to make it more acceptable to our neighbors And in doing so, we've robbed it of its very meaning and its power. It's only when we see Jesus exactly in the way that Almighty God in His wisdom and in His providence has revealed Him to us through His Spirit that we can ever come to know Him as the all-powerful King, the merciful Redeemer that He truly is. He is our Savior and our Lord. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the promised one of God, the captain of our salvation. And when we accept Him as He's been revealed to us in the Bible, then and only then can we know something about genuine joy and peace and the way that they are tied to this man, Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we look at this fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel, we see our Savior beginning this Gospel narrative already embroiled in conflict and suffering from the very outset of his ministry. Speaking those words that divide the sheep from the goats. Speaking the words that brings one one to his knees in worship while driving another to get up and attempt to lay hands on him in an act of murderous rage. Jesus Christ, meek and mild, only wanting for people to be happy, Well, beloved, as we look to God's word this morning, it's my prayer that we will see Jesus Christ for exactly who has revealed himself to be, that we may find our rest in him and in him alone. 
So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like you to turn with me again to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 4 and follow along as I read verses 14 through 30. Hear now the word of our Lord. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of a hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down off the, over the cliff. Then, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray that you would fill us this morning. We pray, Father, that you would clear away those things that distract us that we would be able to give our full undivided attention to the wonderful truth of your word and that hearing your word and being transformed by your word, we would live more and more for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What we find here in this fourth chapter of Luke's gospel account, Jesus returning to Nazareth returning to the very place where he had been brought up as a child. He had at this point in his short life already been baptized by John in the Jordan River. And of course you undoubtedly remember that glorious scene. We spoke of it only just several weeks ago. 
when the Father opened up the heavens and said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. We are told that the Spirit of God then descended upon him like a dove, thus marking the beginning of his ministry on the earth. And following that event, we are told that he came up from the Jordan River and that he was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days by Satan. And following his very sound defeat of Satan and not succumbing to those various temptations, Luke tells us in verse 14 that Jesus then had made his way into the region of Galilee in power and that soon news of his fame began to spread. We've been looking at it in Mark. You understand why. He had worked many miracles. He had healed those who were desperately sick. He had worked many wonders. And so news of his supernatural power had preceded him to the place where he was from. The place where he was raised in Nazareth. And that's how Luke sets this scene for us. And now we are told, as was his custom, Jesus, of course, makes his way to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He goes into the synagogue where he had been known from the time of his childhood. And he stands up in the presence of all of those there in the synagogue to read the word of God from the scroll that was handed to him. Beloved, I want you to really get the weight of this scene. You can imagine there had to have been a considerable buzz going on in the synagogue that day. Here he was, this great prophet who had actually grown up in their midst. They knew him personally. They knew his mother. They knew his father. They knew his whole family. They knew him as a child. And they had undoubtedly already heard of his miracles, how he had accomplished some pretty amazing things in the sight of the people who then spread the news of him to the surrounding regions. And they've heard some of his teaching at this point, how he teaches as one with real and weighty authority, not simply as an uneducated son of a carpenter, but as one who exceeds even the scribes themselves. And authority. And here he is in their synagogue. And he stands up to speak, and you can almost feel the anticipation. Right? What's he going to say? Will he perform some of his miraculous wonders here for us? He will. This is his hometown, after all. He, he will certainly do for us at least what he's done for others. So Jesus stands and he finds the place and the prophet Isaiah that he's looking for, which happens to be chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And upon finishing this reading from Isaiah, with all eyes riveted upon him, he rolls up the scroll, 
And he says to the people of his hometown, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you even imagine this moment? And how it had to have been perceived. Just like that, in a moment of time, this man, whom they had known since he was a child, who had apparently shown some displays of mysterious power in all of the outlying regions, he stands up and he pronounces not just the good news, but truly the best news that fallen, sinful human beings could ever dream of hearing. He clearly proclaims that the promise of God is fulfilled in their midst. That he, the one standing in their presence, is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. The Redeemer of God's people, the very one promised in the prophet Isaiah. And the people are staggered. Luke says they all marveled at his words and the merciful way in which he spoke. He clearly was someone that had a different kind of authority than they understood. His speech was such that it caused them to perk up and to pay attention and to listen. Luke says they spoke of the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth. And they listened for a moment. And then they began to look around at one another and they said, hey, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? Even though they marvel at the graciousness of his speech, they marvel at his manifest authority, they look around at one another and they ask, could this man possibly be who he just said that he was? Isn't this simply the the son of Joseph and Mary? And Jesus has told them not only who he was, but he's told them exactly why he was there. What he came to do. He said he came to preach the good news to the poor. He came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to set the captives free. And keep in mind that these people, though they were at least still gathering to read publicly the word of God, they really had not been paying too much attention to what the word of God said. They were not at all expecting a Messiah who in any way, shape, or form resembled this man. Whom they at least thought that they were somewhat familiar with. The Messiah that they wanted, the Messiah that they expected, that they even anticipated, was actually a much different Messiah than the one who had been revealed throughout the Law and the Prophets. They were expecting a mighty warrior. They were expecting one who would just sort of swoop in and free them from being under the tyranny of Rome and establish them once again as a mighty and fearful nation. One who would bring back the glory that they felt that they so rightly deserved as the very people of God. Might and terror and brawn. One who would send the nations cowering and fleeing in horror before him. This is what they were waiting for. This is what they felt they needed. And so they ignored the clear presentation given to them in the prophets. And decided that their Messiah would be exactly the way that they thought that he should be. 
That sounds familiar, doesn't it? The sad truth is that they, like so many of us, were far too easily satisfied. Building up a model Messiah who was so much less than the the one promised to them by God. Expecting God to appeal to their fancies and their lusts, they awaited a warrior who would conquer men for a moment in time rather than a redeemer who would conquer sin, death, and the devil for all of eternity. They had their own perceptions of what the Christ should be and what they would accept. And even as the very promised one of God stood in their midst, they could not and they would not accept him as such. They immediately looked down their noses at him in contempt and said, this is Joseph's son. If only they knew, they might see that the Messiah of their own creation, as is always the case, was far, far less than what stood before them in the synagogue this day. They wanted to be freed from the dominion of Rome. He came to free them from the dominion of sin. They wanted to be recreated as a new and powerful nation of men. He came to recreate them into the very image of the Son of God. Again, I think we can relate here. We too as Christians are at times far too easily satisfied. We prefer strength, humanly speaking, to the one who speaks to the creation but a word and brings it into immediate subjection. And obedience. Because it belongs to him. They thought that his target enemy. Would be Rome. But the enemy he came to crush with his mighty arm. Was far more than Rome. He came to defeat sin and death. To deliver his people from all of the power of the devil. They thought that he would come to free them from their conquering nations, to set them free nationally and physically, to end their grief that resulted from their bondage. But he came to heal the brokenhearted, to take the one who through the power of the Spirit realized his sin and his miserable state before God and to set him free from the penalty and the bondage of sin for eternity. They were looking for a mere temporal king. But he came to reign over all of heaven and earth as the king eternal. They longed for a Messiah who would set up a temporal kingdom full of earthly power and might. But he came first to establish a spiritual kingdom ruling first and foremost their hearts. And reigning for eternity. The things that they thought that they needed that they had placed as being the very marks of the Messiah were really just cheap little glimmers of real power that they would have revealed to them in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They sought a show of power through might and he came to change the hearts of men. What a contrast, right? And here he is standing in the synagogue of his youth proclaiming that the very one whom whom Isaiah the prophet had prophesied about, the very one who would be anointed by the very Spirit of God to preach freedom to the captives, was there 
It was Him. The very Word of God incarnate standing in the midst of their congregation. Beloved, you can imagine the tension. (laughs) And then Jesus continues to speak and the reaction of the people is telling. He looks at this crowd of very familiar faces. He knows that they are anticipating some miracle, some great work of magic from Him. They've heard of His miracles elsewhere. And so He says to them, You will surely say to Me, Physician, heal heal yourself. Whatever we have heard that you have done in Capernaum, do here in your own country. But assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And he really makes that truth sting and ring in their deaf ears. You understand what he's saying to them there at the end of our passage. He points out to them that God could have sent Elijah that great prophet of Israel, to any number of widows in Israel during that great famine. But the fact is, he did not. God instead chose to send him to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And Elisha, he could have cleansed any number of the lepers who were Israelites. But Almighty God had him cleanse and heal only Naaman who of course was nothing more than a despised Syrian. Jesus makes it abundantly clear in the hostile clutches of this crowd that there would be no miracles here because these people's hearts were far from God. And the word of the gospel does the work of separation. Peace to one and condemnation to another. And of course, the people become enraged. Luke says that they actually sought to kill him. He tells us that they drove him out of the city of his upbringing all the way to the brow of a high cliff where their sole intent was to cast him from the edge of that cliff in order to end his blaspheming life. And then the people get their miracle. In a strange bit of irony... They don't even realize it's going on. In the midst of this terrifying scene of riotous chaos, this boiling over of self-righteous indignation, we are told that Jesus Christ walks right through the midst of this riotous mob and he goes on his way unmarked, unharmed, and apparently even undetected by any of them. Beloved, what was it? that sparked that kind of rage? What was it that Jesus said that could have been so hard to hear that it motivated these people who were so familiar with him and his family to instantly desire to rise up in murderous aggression and and seek to end his life? What did he do? He told them the truth. That's what he did. First, he attacked their idolatrous Messiah. He revealed the true Messiah to them, and in doing so, he tore down their idolatrous replacement for him. Then I think he pointed to the one thing that all of the people in the synagogue did not want to think of, and that is the absolute sovereignty of Almighty God 
over all things. The natural man hates it. They had their conception of God and he fit their purposes on their terms. He was, after all, their idol. Their conception of the purpose of the coming of the Messiah was not at all in line with the Scripture. But it was something that they could live with. And here comes this Jesus claiming to be that very long-awaited Messiah, not at all what they were looking for, and He has the audacity to stand in their synagogue and tell them that God will be God and He will not act according to the fancies and the whims of man. He says, Elijah, do you think that there were no widows in Israel? Is that what you believe? Do you believe God just happened to miss that fact and so he had to to send Elijah onto a foreigner? How about Elisha? Do you think there were no lepers in Israel in those days? That everything was just so good with his people that he had to bring in a Syrian in order to show his power? Jesus says God does what He does and He answers to no man. He has mercy on whom He will have mercy and He condemns whom He will condemn. God will not be the product of any man's whim or fancy. His knowledge is so far above ours that next to the knowledge of God, our best knowledge is nothing short of folly. We possess these faint little glimmers, these mere reflections of the perfections that exist in God. And it's the height of foolishness, the height of pride and folly to think that we can better judge what God will or what God ought to do. But that's exactly what the Jewish people did. They recreated God to fit their own fancies, to be appealing to them based on what they perceived their needs to be. And Jesus would not have it. He knew their hearts, and so he exposed them for what they were. And we see that throughout his life, don't we? Constantly taking on the perceived religious ones and pointing out that they were trusting in something entirely of their own creation. That the sovereign God of the universe would not be recreated for them, but would actually destroy their idols, destroy their false peace, and ultimately judge and condemn them to the fires of hell. Beloved, I want to tell you, no doctrine in the Bible is more offensive to the natural man than the sovereignty of Almighty God. Now, let's consider our modern church and its portrayal of Jesus Christ and why it was that He came to this earth to save mankind. We have to ask ourselves, are we guilty of the same thing? as the Jewish people in Christ's day? Do we really need to recreate a God fitted and molded and made into our image? Does a God made in our image ever produce anything remotely like peace or joy or rest? Can peace truly be obtained in this life through our own plan? Changing the word of God, making it more user-friendly, more palatable, more relevant to the people that are around us? Or does it still just serve as a smokescreen? Veiling the revealed Christ. Giving us a perception of peace and joy that will never measure up to the real thing. 
will we so convince ourselves of an idol that when we are finally confronted with the truth of the Word of God, we are thrown into a blind rage? Clinging to our perceptions, unwilling to let them go, unwilling to ever submit to a God who would dare to actually make demands of us. Beloved, I hope this parallel hits home. Because this is exactly what is going on when we seek to remake Jesus Christ in our own image. The Word of God is powerful. And it needs no help from any one of us to convince anyone of who Jesus is. Jesus has revealed Himself in glory through the Gospel. And to the true children of God, He needs no touching up. He is all glorious light to the captives of absolute darkness. He is glorious freedom to those wearing the shackles of the bondage of sin. And when the slaves of sin see their liberator, the last thing they want to do is veil His glory or bring Him down to their level. Do you understand? Beloved, we are not the light. We are called to be reflectors of His light. Despite our own incredible darkness. We are not to recreate a more glorious light that is not actually light at all. Jesus Christ came in power to set the captives free and He did set them free. He came He lived blamelessly under the law. He willingly went to the cross where he received the wrath of God upon himself in our place. He died. He arose on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And when we we see him as he's revealed to us in his word, we are removed from the realm of sin and death and placed in his life. And it is impossible to taste of his freedom and somehow remain unaffected by it. You understand, beloved, we do have something to be filled with joy and peace about. Precisely because Jesus came to divide, to set apart his sheep from the goats, to gather the fruit-producing wheat into the storehouse of heaven and to burn the weeds who are content to merely masquerade as wheat. Jesus is not just some morality guru who seeks to make sure that at the end of the day, we can all, the whole world, just somehow be friends. He is the Messiah. The very Son of God, the Prince of Peace, who came to call His sheep and to equip them to be carried home in His loving arms into their glorious freedom. And yes, beloved, He does it on His terms, even to the exclusion of some. He did not come to bring peace to this world, but a sword. He came not to make a friendly network of fake pretty people who all look exactly the same. He came to overthrow the power of the devil and to set his people free by walking into the wrath of God on our behalf. Walking into the face of adversity and death itself 
for the loving deliverance of his people. So beloved, I ask you this morning, who in their right mind could ever want any other representation of their Savior than this one? Can you make the gospel more glorious? You know that you cannot. And so I ask you in closing, do you know this Christ? Beloved, if you do, then worship your liberator like a freed captive to the glory of Almighty God. Let your life be defined by your thankfulness. Let's pray.